Heavenly Father, uh, I pray that you be with us today. Um, I, I pray that you be with the folks who are here, that they would hear from you, that they, this, uh, hearing this message, hearing the, the word preached today would, would touch their hearts, would, would uh, find just the, the deep core of who they are, and, and Lord God, that they would be in your presence. I pray that, that we would um, know Jesus more by hearing the word preached today, and, and Lord God, I pray that you would take any, any hardness in our hearts, any, anything that stands in the way of us knowing you more. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just break it and help us to hear from you. Lord God, I pray that you would hear, be with me. Help me to, help me to um, be faithful to the Word. Help me to be, uh, um, help me to be focused on preaching the gospel. Uh, in Christ's name, Amen. So, uh, my um, one of the things I do, I do a lot of uh, marriage counseling, and I, I, one of the things I really love. Um, there's a book, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it, but uh, probably half the room knows, um, the, the Five Love Languages. Um, and, and the idea uh, behind this book is that everybody has different ways of expressing affection and, and receiving affection. And, and, and as, as we've gone through the years, my family, one of the things that we are most uh, focused on, like we are very much people who give and receive gifts. Um, and and I, I especially love Christmas. Um, because I, I, I love gifts. I love giving them. I love getting them. I'm not going to even lie about that. Um, and a few years ago, when the tree was in the back of the room instead of the front, somebody, I'm not sure who, but it might have been Roberta, um, wrapped a bunch of empty boxes and put them under the tree for decoration. And, and that, they were there all month. And every time I walked by those boxes... And I'm not just telling you on Sundays, but every time I walked by those boxes, I picked them up and, and just to make sure. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, is there anything more inviting like, like than wrap boxes under a tree? You know, and I, I don't know what happened to them in the end. I probably would have stolen them myself if, if uh, somebody hadn't beaten me to it. Probably one of your kids out there, I know. Uh, <laughs> but I... <laughs> Cody Joe looked really guilty for a second. I, <laughs> the, the reason I'm talking about this is because at the end of the day, they were just empty boxes. They were pretty. They had bows. They had really nice wrapping paper. They were gorgeous, but they were just empty boxes. And as we do Christmas, as we celebrate Christmas, as we sing the songs, as we do our gift giving, as we put up lights and, and we get the poinsettias and everything else, like as we do all of this, all of this stuff that's kind of the decorative stuff, right? Um, that's all it is if we lose the core of what it's about. Um, the, we're working our way through a series, uh, The Gospel According to Christmas. And, and what I wanted to focus on, and, and, and hear me as I say this, like, I wanted to focus on the, the, the deep-seated truth that Christmas is the celebration of God coming to rescue us. Um, God coming and, and becoming one of his people and, and saving us from our sins. That is what it's really about. And if we celebrate Christmas and we forget that Christ died for us, um, it's like walking out the door with one of those empty boxes and celebrating the wonderful gift that you got that looks pretty and makes you feel good. And you might even pick it up and shake it every once in a while, but it's still empty. Right? Um, so as we dive into the text today... Um, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at what's inside it. 
right? Because this is one of those passages, and Christmas is hard to preach. I'm, I'm going to tell you, Christmas is hard to preach because every one of these texts, everyone in the room has heard preached 900 times. If you're really old like Craig, it's probably more. But, but you've all heard this, and it's really hard to like, like come at it in a fresh way or whatever, but it's not about the fresh way. It's about like the amazing gift that we receive at Christmas, the amazing gift of God's Son coming and dying for us. And as we dive into like Matthew this morning, um, what we're going to be looking at, first off, Matthew is one of the disciples. He was um, Matthew the tax collector, right? Uh, and his book is focused like very heavily on sort of the Jewish perspective on the coming of Christ. And so there's a lot of really Jewish stuff in it, which I love. So I, Matthew is my favorite gospel, bar none. John is probably second, but, but um, this is my top ten list. Uh, but, but, like, Matthew is powerful because of that, and there's a lot of, like, truth that you can kind of, like, dig out of it because there's all of this history behind it. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's all of this, like, Jewish culture and what the rabbis said and what happened, you know, in the thousands of years building up to it. And, and all of that stuff was building up to the coming of Christ. Now, in this particular text, we're going to look at two names. In the ancient world, your name was an enormous deal, right? That's part of the reason Christ changed the names of several of his disciples, which is really presumptuous if you think about it. You know, you meet someone and you say, you know what, from here on out, I'm going to call you Peter, no, you're named after your dad, but you're Peter. I mean, that's a, that's a thing, right? Like, but those names carried meaning, and they carried weight. Like, for example, Peter like, means the rock. And actually, there's a great passage where Peter, he's called, that's why you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Um, he actually, in the beginning of the story, it's one version of the word rock, and in the end, it's a different version. Because it goes from a collection of stones to a solid foundation rock. Once he's confessed that Christ is the Son of God, right? Um, and so, like, like, understand everybody's name. And actually, as you dig into the Old Testament, you really see it. Like, Jacob, who was, um, you know, the younger brother who stole the inheritance and swindled his father-in-law and all these other things. Jacob's name, Jacob, means liar or deceiver. And that, then God changes it to Israel. And so we see all of these examples, like names are a huge deal. And so as we get into the text we're looking at today, um, understand the two names we're going to look at are a big deal and they carry huge significance. Um, the last thing we're going to talk about, this is the big version of the story. Um, because the coming of Christ is, it is the epitome of the story of the scriptures. Everything that has happened up until this point is building to this. Like this is, um, this is, this is the, the climax of the story. Um, and so we're actually going to go the roundabout way, and I'm going to explain this. We go all the way back to Genesis. Um, and we looked at Genesis a few weeks ago, but we're going we're gonna to start there again. Um, this is right after the fall. Adam and Eve have eaten the apple, or the piece of fruit, I'm sorry, don't mean to malign apples. Um, they've eaten the piece of fruit. They realize they're naked. They hide. They make clothes out of leaves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? They were not surprised that he was there. Because up until this point, man 
Adam and Eve, right? They'd had such a close relationship with God that God would drop in and hang out with them, right? Like there's nothing in this text that implies that this is an unusual occurrence. They knew it was God, right? Like, oh, wow, God's here. Time to go, guys. Time to hide. Um, Like my kids, they hear me coming because I have distinctive footsteps and they scatter, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) They were so close with God that God would show up and spend time with them. Um, God was with them. After the fall, they're expelled from the garden. Um, God puts guards at the door so they can't come back. And from here on out, as you read the scriptures, when God talks to people, the earth shakes. Moses glows like a, like a, like a reindeer. And <laughs> when he's in God's presence, he comes out and he glows and he has to wear a veil so people don't stare at him all the time. Um, the, the, like if you were in God's presence, you would die. Like God, when he was on the Mount Sinai, if you climb the mountain, you would, you would literally die for approaching God. Um, the Ark of the Covenant where God's glory appeared, if you touched the Ark of the Covenant, you would die. If you opened it, it would kill everybody in the room, apparently, or in town. Um, that was not an Indiana Jones reference. That actually happened where people opened the Ark, and it was like everyone died. Um, God went from being right there with his people to being really far away. Um, and that is not the way we were designed to live. We were designed to be in God's presence. We were designed to have him as a part of our lives. We were designed to, to interact with him and have relationship with him. Um, we were designed to consult with him and to create for him and to celebrate him. Like We were designed to be God's closest like creation. And then we were far away. And the whole of creation suffered as a result. You read the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is building to God coming back to his people. Because sin can't be in God's presence. God didn't just like, oh, well, I'm mad and I'm kicking everyone out. It's No, it's sin infected the creation because God is so holy, sin cannot be in his presence. And so, like, everybody is brought far away from God because we're all sinful by birth. We all rebel. We all find ways to do stupid stuff. And... And everything suffers. And as you go through the scriptures, like the story of Abraham from this perspective, like as you read Abraham, Abraham's a weird story until you realize that like nobody, nobody, nobody is following God. And God picks out one guy and says, from here on out, you're, you, you're my people. And I'll be your God. Like we're starting with you. And then Abraham's children followed him. And then Abraham's children's children followed him. And eventually you get to the point where Moses shows up. And God says, listen, if you're going to be my people and we're all going to be close. I forgot to record, didn't I? If you're going to be my people and we're all going to be close. um, I did. Um, Then what's going to happen is I'm going to give you an understanding of how to be my people. Here are the rules. This is how you have a relationship with me. You don't have other gods. You don't kill each other. You don't, you know, like I have rules in my marriage, right? My wife has rules that we follow. Um, we, <laughs> we have rules that we both follow. We talk to each other, right? Like we don't date other people. We don't, you know, like all of these things are rules and this is how you have this relationship. God does that with the, with the law. The law is an understanding of how to be in relationship with God, how to be holy appropriately for God. Um, And it just draws man closer and draws man closer. And we discover that man can't do it on his own. And, like, throughout history, like, 
like God's people, they rebel. They turn from him. They, they, they hate him at times. They murder his children. They, they um, defame his temple. They, they soil it. Um, when God gives them good things, they figure out ways to make it horrible. Like the whole of, you know, the, whole of the Old Testament is the story of how we can't do it on our own. And God is drawing his people back close again, right? So we're going to jump into Matthew. I know there's a, man, that was a 10-minute introduction. What are you doing to us, Eric? Don't worry, it'll be Christmas when we finish. This is how I was going to get Christmas Eve attendance up. I was just going to go the next two days, and you're all going to be here. Um, so this is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Um, so Matthew starts with a genealogy, by the way. And... Um, um, Luke also has a genealogy that follows Mary's lineage. Matthew follows uh, Joseph's lineage, right? And so um, Matthew does not address the angel approaching Mary, like because he's focused on this, right? And so we jump into it. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to, divorce, to divorce her quietly. So they had yet to be married, but they're going to get divorced, which is weird in our culture. The deal was you got married by signing a contract and like paying a dowry to the household, and you were agreeing. Like this was, women had a great deal of legal rights in, in ancient Israel. And like they, they had this right to, to um, legal status in marriage. And so they were engaged, but that engagement was legally binding. Um, until he came and he married her and they consummated the marriage and all that. Like, like all of that other stuff was sort of the formality of it. The contract was a big deal. And so she was supposed to be, she was, she was essentially his wife, like, in advance of being his wife. And so for him to divorce her quietly would be to, to break the contract, to get his refund, to, you know, separate. Um, and the fact that she was pregnant, Joseph assumed that something had happened that didn't involve him. Um, and he said, well, I don't want to destroy this woman, and so we're going to do this quietly. Like, because pretty much she's about to become an outcast, right? I, I think... Years ago in a sermon, I talked about um, this particular, like, the cultural perspective on it. And I had people who were really offended by it. Because in ancient Israel, like, they might kill you for getting pregnant out of wedlock, right? Like, they, they might. It, like, there's a real possibility there. Um, she would be considered unmarriable from here on out, and she would live with her family forever. Like, it's a real punishment. Um, and, and so... For him to do this, like he's trying to do right by her. He's trying to be faithful to the law. He's trying to balance. He's showing her some grace. He's following the law, which would say that he should not marry her because she's pregnant by another man. Um, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You will give, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And this is one of those passages that gets lost um, if, you, if you don't know a little bit about the original language. Um, the name Jesus is the Greek version of a Hebrew word, right? And I actually had to write it down because my Hebrew is terrible, but John's not here to, like, catch me. He's the only other guy in the room who speaks Hebrew, 
Uh, and so I could say whatever I want, and nobody would know. Um, the, the English version of it, the closest would be Joshua, right? The pronunciation would be Yehosua. Yehosua. But if you write it in Greek, it's Jesus, right? Um, it's a little like how uh, Jose is Joseph, right? And Petra is Peter. It's just, it's a cultural pronunciation. And so he says, well, you'll name him Yehosua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Um, remember what we talked about in the beginning, right? Names carry meaning. Names tell what this person's destiny is, what their purpose is, how their role in God's creation is going to be. Um, And so this name carries weight. And specifically the weight it carries is he will be the one who will save God's people. Um, It is a prediction of what is to come. Now, we talked about this in an earlier sermon. At the time, the assumption would be that he was going to be a military leader or a political like powerhouse. That's not the case, right? Um, he was going to save his people in the way that like nobody expected. But there's something else going on here. Now watch this. Mary was not a descendant of King David. However, for a person to be king of the Jews, he has to be a descendant of King David because only King David's grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren could be like king, right? And that was a promise God made to David. He said, listen, your descendant will be on the throne in Israel forever and ever and ever. And I was talking about Jesus. This is a promise that's being fulfilled about a thousand years later. Um, But he's not, like by Mary, a descendant. However, in ancient Israel, either the husband or the wife could name a child, right? If the husband named a child that was not his, he became his. It's part of the reason, like, Jesus would rename people because they were his. I mean, I can't just name people, right? Like, I, I can't, you know, hey, Rebecca, you're Susan now. Congratulations. I can't do that, right? Now, my wife I've given about a million nicknames to. Some of them are even nice um, because she's my wife. I can give her nicknames. My kids, I named them. They're mine, right? Though when they're bad, they're hers. Um, <laughs> the, the idea here is David names him, and David, or I mean, Joseph names him, and Joseph takes him into the lineage of David. And so he becomes, like, legitimately, like, an, an acceptable king of the Jews, an acceptable member of the royal, like, household, um, That's not a small thing because God is lining everything up, and he has been lining everything up until this point. And so David naming him is God making an accommodation, but even more so, the name. He will save them from their sins because he will save them. He will save them. And we see this played out throughout the New Testament. I'm just going to use one passage to cite here, right? This is Peter preaching the gospel to the Sanhedrin. This is very early in the church. Peter has been arrested. He is put on trial, and he stands up before the Sanhedrin, and he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, think about, like, the wordplay there, right? So there's no other name by which we can be saved, and the name is Yehoshuah. Yahweh is salvation. Um, the name that he uses, like, like, 
Christ is salvation. And that's what the angel is telling him. Salvation. We will be saved from our sins. And so the biggest problem that created the distance. Now, you remember this? We started out close with God. And we wound up far away from God because sin created separation. And over and over and over again in the scriptures, we see where God provides ways. He says, listen, this is how you, like this is the law. This is how you have a relationship with me. But sin keeps them far apart. Um, sin keeps them from drawing close together again. Sin keeps them from like, like being in God's presence at all. The thing that needs to be fixed in order for people to be close with God again sin but we can't do that on our own all right so anybody here gained about 25 pounds in the last two weeks three weeks maybe because if you put something in front of me and i think i should not eat that but you leave it there guess what i'm going to do i'm going to eat it um you put something in front of me that tempts me long enough Eventually, I'm going to indulge in it, right? You put me near something that I want to do that's a rebellion against God. If I hang out there long enough and I'm tempted by it long enough, my sinful nature is going to reach up and grab the wheel and steer me into oncoming traffic, right? Like, that is how it works. The sinful nature is powerful, and it draws us into sin. And so only by God fixing it for us can we draw back into his presence, which is the whole point of the Bible. The whole Bible is about us coming back into God's presence, being saved from our sins. And so the angel begins by announcing you will be saved by by this one. Like, like Yahweh is salvation, you will be saved from your sins. Like, this is it. And so this announcement is the beginning of, like the gospel, we are saved by Christ. Christ is going to save us from our wickedness from our rebellion, from our sinful inclination. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Now watch this one. This is jumping back like Matthew's about to quote the book of Isaiah. Um, And this is Isaiah 7. The virgin will will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is, again, like the virgin with child. This is um, chapter 7 of that book, like Isaiah. Um, And it's a big deal. What happened in the original, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, um, God comes to Isaiah and talks to the king of Israel. And he says, hey, you're about to be wiped out by the Assyrians, but I'm going to save you. And here is the sign that I'm going to save you. By the time this particular young woman has a child, you'll be rescued. You will be saved. And before he is of this age, you know, and God makes all of these promises based on this. In the immediate, it's weird because the king, like Isaiah comes and says, well, hey, ask for a sign. And the guy's like, nope, I don't want I don't want a sign. I don't want nothing. And Isaiah's like, and Isaiah says, then Isaiah said, here now, house of David, is it enough to try the patience of human? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Um, God, like, forces this sign on him, right? <laughs> God's like, hey, hey, I'm doing something here. You take it, right? Like, this is the sign. The virgin will have a child. This is pointing forward to the coming of Mary, 
right? Like to the coming of Christ through Mary, like the virgin birth. Like, but, and the virgin birth's a big deal. And like historically, all of these theologians have tried to grapple with like, well, why is it a virgin birth? What's the significance of that? Is that about this? Is this about that? Does it have to do with original sin? Does this, this, this? They've all guessed, but, um, and I'm not getting into that today. I'm not discounting any of that stuff. But I want to point out, it does connect us to this phrase, this name, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Um, Emmanuel is used several times in the following chapters because there's a whole series of conversations that Isaiah has. And he brings all of these like oracles, all these uh, prophecies from God. And the, the name there, Emmanuel, like literally in Hebrew, it means God is with us. God is with us. Um, so in Isaiah 8, 7 and 8, uh, we see, Therefore the Lord is about to bring against them a mighty floodwaters, of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria, with his pomp, with with all of his pomp, it will overflow all its channels, run all over the banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. The first part of that is like all about Israel or Judah's rebellion against God. Judah doesn't love God. Judah's rebelling against God. Judah's like like constantly God's enemy. And then he says, therefore, God is going to bring about this, this disaster. The Assyrians are coming. And he ends with this word, Emmanuel, which is a prayer. The world is about to end for you people, but God is with us. Like an enemy army is about to come here and wipe all of you people out because you're rebelling. But God is with us. he goes on and he says, raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. And so he says, listen, you people are in rebellion. An enemy army is coming, but they will not beat you because God is with us. God is here to punish you, but you're going to repent. God is going to save you. Because God is with us. Um, twice he uses it as a prayer. And the prayer basically is like, oh my gosh, the world is ending. We are in a lot of trouble. But God is with us. Um, we go from over here, where we're close to God, to over here, where our rebellion draws us away from him. But God provides a way to forgive our sins, and then the virgin will be with child, and you will call him, God is with us, right? Because God literally steps into the creation and is with us. And this great big gulf that exists between us and him, this great big expanse like created by our sins, this distance in our relationship with him, God corrects it by coming to us because we can't come to him. And so, like, the whole of the scriptures, like this, this exchange with Matthew is like, is like all of it fitting into place. The creation is broken. God is far from his people. But God will come and be amongst you. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because God stepped over the gap for us. When we're in times that things are just as broken as they can be, God is with us. When you wake up in the morning and you feel like you can't get out of bed, Emmanuel, God is with us. When you look at the mess you have made of your life, the collection of garbage choices and, 
and wrong turns and everything else, and you back up and you say, nothing will ever make it right. Emmanuel, God is with us. Because we can never be good enough, but God loves us anyway. Because we can never be holy on our own, but God steps into our presence and he is with us. And he carries the weight of our sins on the cross, like is punished in our place. God is with us. I have a hard time writing this sermon this week because I'm, I'm having a bad week. And like over and over again, I keep coming back to this and I'm saying, oh, God is with us, right? You know, most of you all know, I guess my mom died. and There's this whole thing where you think, man, I, you know, I can't think of a worse thing. Like, it's pretty bad. I mean, I, anyway. But I'm going to see her again because God is with us. I know a lot of people in this room in the same place, right? God is with us. It's bad and as broken and as far away as God seems, he's with us. And so as we celebrate Christmas, the cool thing is that big box under the tree, it's not empty. God puts himself in it. He gives us himself. And actually, the cool thing, it doesn't even stop there. Because it says that um, the Holy Spirit, like, like Christ died for our sins, he is resurrected, he ascends to heaven, and he sends a helper. His helper is the Holy Spirit. And so not only was Jesus God who you could talk to, like whereas God would talk before and the earth would shake, Jesus talked to prostitutes. He talked to people who were unclean and lepers. And, and Matthew, the guy who's writing this book, is a tax collector. He's basically a traitor to his whole nation and religion. He's one of the most hated people in the world. People murdered these guys in the street regularly. I mean, they were bad. Um, and yet Christ ate, ate lunch with him. God is with us. And then after Christ left, his Holy Spirit took up residence in us. And so I'm unclean and I'm wicked and I've rebelled in every other way I could possibly think of. And I stumble and fall every day. And yet the Holy Spirit is in me because of Emmanuel. The great gift we receive is is Christ himself. The great gift we receive is God back in our presence and the creation set right. And so as you walk out the door today, the gift you pick up is it doesn't come in a pretty bow and it doesn't come with nice wrapping paper. It comes with a brand new life, brand new heart. I can hope in the future. I'll see my mom again. You guys will see Christ face to face eventually. We will all know him intimately because of the gift we receive and because of the celebration we have. God is with us. The passage ends with, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel told him and had commanded him. He took Mary home as as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus, because he will save us from our sins, and he was Emmanuel. So as you walk out the door today, as you celebrate Christmas, as you do all of this stuff, like, don't trade the best gift for some, you know, Christmas spirit-like platitude, right? Like, for an empty box. We celebrate God is with us. We praise him this week. We praise him every day because God is with us. Really wanted to finish with a...
couple lines from a song. Um, Rebecca introduced me to this song because she sings it in worship pretty regularly, and I, I, uh, they play it in the church I, I went to last week, and it, it just, just hit me square away, and I'm sharing it with you because it's, it's um, in Christ alone. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, the cornerstone, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears when fears are still, stilled and striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here's the love of Christ. I, here in the love of Christ I stand. As we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate God is with us, and in Christ alone who took on flesh the fullness of God and helpless babe, This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. And here in the death of Christ I live. Merry Christmas. I can't give you a better gift. I can't give you a better message. I can't give you a better anything. Christ died for you. Emmanuel, God is with us because of it. Amen. Have a good day. Go to the nursing home.